Cyberspace is the one and the only to exert itself. Tom Collins with Tom. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me on. I've uh, really enjoyed not being sick this week like I was last week, so I'm I'm pleasantly happy to be upright and not on death's door. Yes, and a big thank you for Stephen Foskett for stepping up uh, while you were recovering uh, from that hideous, hideous disease. Uh, one thing that we will never recover from is my love of doing a segment we like to call News or not. This is where we have a ton of news just kind of in the uh, in the wings this week. We can't quite get to a discussion of all of it, so we're going to just go with a one-sentence news or not declaration by our own Tom Hollingsworth. Are you ready, Tom? I am ready. All right. Uh, first up, we're going to be talking about AWS. They announced that Amazon's consumer business migrated 75 petabytes of data to nearly from nearly 7,500 Oracle databases to multiple AWS services, officially decommissioning its final Oracle database in the process. Amazon still has some third-party services tied into Oracle DBs if you want to get technical, but 100% of Amazon's proprietary systems are now running on AWS. I know it makes Larry mad, Tom, but news or not? This is news because um, you can talk about getting off of a platform all you want, but until you actually make the step to get it done, it's not a thing. And Amazon just fired their shot across the bow of Larry Ellison's volcano lair. Um, it's a thing now. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, very, very interesting. Um, there was a really great write-up uh, on this uh, on Silicon Angle, uh, so make sure you check that out. Uh, we'll have some show notes there uh, to check that out because I really, I was really enjoying reading the write-up and kind of the politics and the history of kind of Larry, uh, uh, you know, kind of negging AWS that they still run on Oracle. So, so very interesting stuff. Uh, next up here, Intel shook out the couch cushions and found twenty-seven million dollars to acquire Smart Edge software business from Pivot Technology Solutions. This is an edge computing solution that runs on x86, designed to help quickly split and store data on edge for 5G. Bingo, by the way. Tom, news or not? Not really. Um, edge computing plays are still two to three years out of valuable resource. And I think that Intel is basically just trying to scoop somebody up on the cheap so that they can integrate that into the R&D that they're doing right now. In other news, though, I do want to get a hold of Intel's couches. <laughs> uh, they're, they're still quite a bit smaller than Apple's, where I think you can get a cool billion dollars uh, if you just really dig uh, a little bit. Uh, but still uh, impressive nonetheless. Uh, in security news here, Tom, this might be of interest to you. A flaw for the Linux command sudo. We all know uh, it was disclosed, allowing anyone using a version prior to 1.8.28 to append a negative one to a user ID and be allowed to run uh, any command as root, regardless of what permission that user actually had. This is caused because the function that converts the user ID into a user name treats a negative one as a zero, uh, which then signifies that that person would have root access. A patch has already been released for most distributions. It should be out there for basically everybody that can patch uh, available ASAP. But news or not that sudo has this vulnerability for so long why they decided to use signed integers for uh process priorities will never <laughs> cease to amaze me okay um yeah, th here's the deal this is a common problem that we see in software development right now um people are finding exploits in code because who QA pseudo? It's literally <laughs> something that just exists on the system. It's it. I don't know. It's like QAing NTP. You can do it, or you can do something useful with your time. Patch <laughs> it and be done. All right. Next up here, uh, Databricks moved their open source Delta Lake project under the auspices of the Linux Foundation. According to Databricks, the move was made to help encourage innovation on the project. 
Delta Lake has gained popularity across any number of large enterprises in helping to increase the reliability, accuracy, and efficiency of data lakes. Um, if you know what it is, that's an extremely simple uh, uh, explanation. If you don't know what it is, I hope that helps in some way. Uh, an open source project becoming more open sourcey. News or not here, Tom? I don't think this is news just because I've seen a lot of projects that are getting moved to the Linux Foundation recently. And this doesn't feel like the glue factory for old horses yet, but <laughs> the, I get the feeling that people move their stuff to the Linux Foundation when they realize that the amount of time they're going to have to invest to make it actually a thing is way beyond their kin. And so they're like, you know what? We're just going to give it to somebody who actually cares. Yeah, it seems to me that, yeah. It- Obviously, Delta Lake has, I don't even want to say momentum, but it has a large enough user base that taking it away from any one uh, particular company's governance and giving it to uh, an an institution like the Linux Foundation, uh, yes, it it encourages innovation, but yeah, it does take uh, a lot of development time off of their hands. Yes, it's an open source project. I know all the politics of that get a little weird in terms of corporate involvement, but uh, maybe... Not the glue factory for the project, but the glue factory for the bags and bags of cash that they don't want to spend on it anymore. Yep. All right. And finally here uh, with News or Not, following PayPal's announcement uh, about a week and a half ago now, eBay, Stripe, MasterCard, Visa, and the Argentinian-based financial services company Mercado Pago, which is actually really huge in, uh, across Latin America, announced their withdrawal from the Libra Association. In statements, Stripe stated that we'll continue to work with the Libra Association in the future, or is at least open to doing so, while Visa stated that the factor in their decision to leave was being able to fully satisfy all requisite regulatory expectations. Ouch. Among the remaining companies in the Libra Association only pay you, which I think we all know, question mark, uh, is the only payments company uh, still in the Libra Association. So, Tom, Libra shedding some really big names here, news or not? I think this is news uh, for two reasons. One, in my hand, I hold all of the Libra cryptocurrency that there is. (laughs) It also represents the chances that Libra cryptocurrency is going to be a thing, which, uh, Nothing, carry the nothing, (laughs) multiply by nothing. Um, This is the thing, ultimately. It turns out that when you are going to try to corner the market on cryptocurrency by putting in front of a billion users that use your service every day, (laughs) Facebook, um, there's some regulatory stuff that has to happen there first. And the EU isn't playing around anymore. So I think what they did is they basically scared all the ships off of the sinking rat. <laughs> so I asked uh, Stephen this last week, but what do you think, you know, the the conversation when Libra was first announced, they were going to have they were going to have a product announcement sometime in 2020, like something named Libra was going to exist in 2020. They're still being bullish about this. They're still saying, you know, the Libra Association Board of Governors or whatever their their big regulatory meeting just happened like a day after this announcement. Basically, I think these companies just didn't want to pay for the flights uh, that were going to be required there. Um, so they're still meeting. They're still saying something's going to happen. What do you think? End of 2020, December 31st, 2020 does something named libra exist that someone can pay for something with yeah it does and it'll be about as useless as every other cryptocurrency that i can't buy stuff with right now (laughs) this is this is approaching mlm ponzi scheme levels of crazy does it become like does facebook just say okay fine we're gonna roll this and make this facebook credits 2.0 just to save some face of like Libra is a thing, but we want to avoid all scrutiny because we didn't realize what we were getting into on this. 
Well, I, I, this is a really tough call because who knows if robot Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 is installed with his emotion chip where he feels hubris for being embarrassed by the fact that he couldn't make a thing happen. If that's the case, then I totally believe that they'll roll this out just to spite people. Um, but if we're still running on the 1.8 software where he is emotionless, uh, just like he was in front of Congress, I think they'll probably quietly let it die and rebrand it. All right. Uh, first up here on our discussion, I guess that was a mini discussion, but I will allow it. Uh, researchers from Fortinet, hey, we know those guys, found an unauthenticated mm -hmm. command injection vulnerability in four models of D-Link routers that could permit remote code execution. D-Link told Fortinet that the four vulnerable router models were end of life and will not receive updates to patch the vulnerability because... I, too much effort? I don't know. Uh, two of the models were discontinued just last year, and three of them are still available for sale on Amazon despite being discontinued. Tom, we've seen these kind of stories crop up from time to time, but technically, yeah, D-Link is you know, uh, meeting all of their commitments when they announce that things are end of life, but we've seen any number of companies. Microsoft is a perfect example generally were released for major uh, security vulnerabilities like this, emergency patches, even for end-of-life things going as far back as, I don't know, Windows XP every once in a while, we'll still see that. So where does the responsibility here fall in terms of, especially for a consumer device, from D-Link to those consumers? Well, uh, this is a perfect example of everybody left holding the bag. Um, D-Link end-of-life these models. Mm -hmm. So they're technically not supported anymore. Yeah, you can still buy them on Amazon, but is that D-Link's fault? Mm, I bet you if you do a little digging, you'll find out that what is actually happening is, is it's companies that are trying to sell through the stock of the junk that they have mm -hmm. because they're end of life, right? Why can't D-Link write software for these? Well, it turns out that there's a really good chance that the software stack just won't run on that device. Uh, the fix is too complicated. We see this with IoT devices all the time. Um, you know, you can't upgrade to this version of code because the processor is incapable of doing that. And if you own an iPad mini too, you know how much that sucks when iOS 13 doesn't support it. On the other hand, how long have you had that iPad? Um, where you're going to start seeing this problem, especially as consumer tech and IoT start making these great leaps and bounds, is security holes are going to be the big problem. And you, re you reference Microsoft. Microsoft has a vested interest in keeping uh, platforms like Windows 7 patched until their end of life. Why? Because people still run those on embedded systems. They shouldn't, but they do. And we're going to see patches going forward for a while. I mean, they were still writing Windows XP patches not too long ago, because as it turns out, there's a huge install base of Windows XP still. Um, ultimately, what's going to happen? Um, you're going to have to cry in your coffee and uh, pay the 50 bucks to upgrade your home router uh, from Best Buy, and the problem goes away. It's disposable technology. Yeah. And the only, I guess, kind of bummer about this is the people that are most likely to buy like a, you know, a end of life third party router off Amazon that was probably super cheap is someone that really doesn't, you know, have a very firm understanding of, you know, how to main like one, even to how to update a router. I mean, that's the other question is how many people out there, even if you told them, even if you mailed them something and said, hey, your router is out of date or you, you put a splash screen up next time they logged into their Wi-Fi uh, that they needed to update the router. How many people would even be able to do that on a consumer basis? I imagine a substantial, I would say a majority of consumers wouldn't be able to do that or just would choose to ignore it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's generally the case is, you know, people can't be bothered to do the things they're supposed to do because if it gets in the way of them being able to watch Netflix, they hate it. <laughs> All right. Next up here, Tom. Now, Tom, you are uh, an event organizer. Am I right? Yes. That's one, one of your responsibilities uh, with Gestalt IT mm -hmm. and uh, Tech Field Day. 
Mm-hmm. Well, LinkedIn is something that they that might be appealing to you. They announced they're going to start rolling out events on October 17th to all English-speaking countries and continuing the rollout there. Uh, it's a free feature. Uh, it's a plan, announce, and invite people to meetups in the physical world meet space, as I like to call it. At launch, the feature is fairly limited to users uh, only able to create announcements and invite first-party contacts, so you can invite uh, a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that. Uh, and there's no way to promote beyond that. Uh, manage locations, do a kind of advanced ticketing like you would with something like an Eventbrite or something like that. Even to set limits on the number of invitees, you're kind of out in the open there. Uh, LinkedIn says they want to focus on organic usage for now, uh, so not building in some paid promotion tools or anything like that. I imagine that's coming, though, because they like the money. Uh, is the end goal here for something like this to compete with something like Eventbrite, or do you see this as uh, maybe just a way to encourage a little bit of lock-in with LinkedIn? Not that LinkedIn has any competitors in like the workspace and networking, but Events has done a really good job of keeping people at least logging into Facebook. LinkedIn, which has has like diehard business users and everyone else that doesn't care about it, is Events a way to get people to kind of regularly check what's going on on the site? Yep. This has absolutely nothing to do with Eventbrite. When you look at the way that these things are are constructed, Eventbrite is a ticketing company that has a social component. They are designed to build an event and, you know, limit capacity and offer you know, bonuses for people to sign up and stuff like that. Eventbrite has, in my mind, a use. Um, Facebook events is broadcasting to everybody you know, hey, look, I'm doing a thing. And I think that LinkedIn is basically tracking that. It's, there's there's no value to this from an actual ticketing perspective. I would not go create something on LinkedIn events that I would then not double up and do an event bright when I wanted to do it right. Um, I, I don't see the value in this long-term other than, like you said, getting people to log into LinkedIn today. Yeah. And just to see, you know, oh, was there a lunch and learn or something like that that I missed out about at work? Uh, let me check that out. I do think it has some interest, you know, like that's an idea of, you know, taking something that is purely, you know, these purely digital connections that are uh, often quite specious, you know, in terms of everyone just kind of adding everyone that they've ever met at any kind of trade show or something like that to their LinkedIn profiles. But the idea of of adding in a physical component, I don't know, like to me, if if that takes off, that's a big if, right? Because one, it has to be, again, not people just adding everyone that they know and, and treating it as spam, right? If they can if they can find a way to keep it reasonable, keep it well-managed, and maybe even roll in something where it becomes a paid feature for organizations um, and, and provide some value both to users and to organizations, I think that's the key here is that, again, it, it has to not be spam. It has to uh, provide some sort of value. I don't know. Adding in that physical component potentially changes the way maybe you interact with the network long-term in this current implementation, it's it's so basic, you know, it, we're purely speculating then at that point. Yeah. All right. Next up here, Tom, uh, someone that's not speculating uh, is the private equity fund uh, Toma Bravo. Uh, they bought the UK-based cybersecurity giant Sophos uh, for $3.9 billion. Uh, Toma Bravo has previously acquired a minority stake in McAfee and had reportedly been interested in a full acquisition earlier this year. So we will see where that goes. You may not have heard of this private equity fund before. I mean, how many private equity funds can you name, Tom? Uh, Not many for me, but you've probably heard of some of their acquisitions like Barracuda Networks, Veracode, Imperva, and ConnectWise. HP recently acquired uh, Bromium, and someone always seems to want to be interested in, uh, seems to be interested in McAfee, whether it's Intel actually buying them or any number of rumors that we've heard over time. Are we starting to see a little bit of a security bubble in terms of everybody kind of wanting a piece of that pie internally for large organizations? Yeah, I think we are. Um, VMware 
the carbon black acquisition is going to drive a lot of this. Um, I think what Tama Bravo's thinking is that there's going to be a lot of positioning against carbon black. And um, honestly, Sophos was probably a better solution than McAfee. We know that McAfee's traded hands a few times. It was Intel's, then it's not Intel's. Um, I think this is a good move overall, but I'm a little curious about the strategy here. Um, Tama Bravo has bought a lot of companies recently and they don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And it seems like Tama Bravo's can, yeah, yeah, they're, they're content to sit in the back and, and stroke a cat and (laughs) plot some kind of weird world domination thing. What, really what they're trying to do is they're trying to pump the the price a little bit and, and package it up and get it ready to sell off again. That's mostly what these private equity firms do. Don't don't kid yourself. This is not about shareholder value. This is about Tama Brava value. Um, so I don't know what the end result is. Do, or do they expect that maybe they're going to hold on to it and somebody's going to come calling? I mean, $4 billion is an awful lot of money to make up on a company um, if you're going to expect to spin it out later. Yeah, and... You know, to that point, that that may be, uh, you know, private equity funds kind of realize seeing this bubble taking place and wanting to kind of get in with whatever assets they can. Um, whether it's Sophos, I think they paid like a twenty-seven percent uh, premium over uh, their existing valuation. Um, so, you know, uh, again, uh, kind of being a little aggressive here in this acquisition. So, we will see uh, how long they hold on to it uh, and what the effect uh, on the overall market is going forward. Um, one thing that will have an effect uh, on the market is uh, an antitrust investigation into Broadcom by the European Commission. Uh, as a result of that, they issued interim orders uh, on uh, regarding exclusivity deals Broadcom had in place with six customers, banning those exclusivity deals over the next three years. This is kind of a remarkable step. Uh, it's been the first time in almost 20 years that the uh, European Commission has issued these kind of interim sanctions, essentially, against a company as opposed to, you know, making a ruling after uh, the completion of a full investigation. According to the EU's competition chief, uh, Marguerite Vestager, who has one of my favorite names, there is substantial evidence that Broadcom is engaging in anti-competitive behavior and likely to cause substantial harm to consumers if not stopped. This is the first time in 18 years, like I said, that these have gone. So how bad does this look for Broadcom here, Tom? How bad does it look? Bad. How bad is it going to be? Not bad. Um, realistically speaking, here's the thing, uh, Broadcom got slapped on the wrists because as it turns out, when you're a merchant silicon vendor, you need to be a merchant to people. And I think what happened was, is that they got crossways with somebody who didn't want to pony up the money for an exclusivity deal. So they go rat them out to the EU and say, dad, dad, he, he won't let me play with him. And so what's going to happen is they're going to get scolding from the EU. Scolding's probably going to require some money to be exchanged, you know, in the forms of a fine, which the EU has actually been pretty good about fining people. And then what? Uh, we're going to say the Broadcom can't sign any more exclusivity deals with customers for how long? Two years? Five years? Or if the fine's big enough, we don't we don't care if you sign any more exclusivity deals. And what's going to happen is Broadcom's going to come right back and say, well, why is it that we can't sign an exclusivity deal with these companies when those companies over there have done the same thing? Because this is the way that people do this. You sign an exclusivity deal with a company, you get access to their hardware or something, or what they do is they transform the deal from an exclusivity deal to a deep partnership, which is technically not illegal, and they're going to continue to do the exact same thing they've been doing all along. 
Yeah, I, I think the larger implications here are the fact that the European Commission is willing to put these interim sanctions in place and being a little bit more aggressive with that, maybe signaling that that will uh, may become more common in anti-competitive uh, cases going forward. Because, I mean, a lot of times we hear about these investigations and it's literally, you know, upwards of five years that these investigations can mm-hmm. be longer where any harm that's done to consumers by having, you know, whatever this exclusivity is, has already naturally been done. And any fine that you're going to levy is not going to, you know, you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle at that point. So so maybe that's the, the bigger implication here. The other thing that I think is interesting is, you know, who's the benefit of a non-exclusive uh, Broadcom arrangement? Oh, hey, here's Huawei. <laughs> Just like, hey, yeah. guys, do you, want, do you guys need some chips? Uh, I know, like, you know, maybe Qualcomm as, as some as, as certainly has some overlap, for sure, depending on what the market is. Uh, and these were things like set-top box modems, that kind of stuff. But that's really Huawei's re- bread and butter. Um, so I'm, I'm interested if that will have a, a um, unintended consequence. I mean, I'm sure it's not unintended. They, the EU and the European Commission knows what the competitive landscape is uh, for these kind of chips. But still, um, I think that's something that's maybe a little underreported is that this is actually really good news for Huawei, too. Mm-hmm. All right. And we're going to be finishing up here. Comval Go is going on right now. In fact, uh, you should check out our uh, Tech Field Day exclusive coverage we have going on that we had just had a live blog going on from the keynote. Uh, so you can check that out at gestaltit.com. But uh, there were some product announcements from there. Uh, and the big one that seems to be getting a lot of buzz is Metallic. Uh, this is a set of cloud native data protection services squarely focused on the mid market. In fact, I mean, Comval came out and said these we talked to the mid market. We designed it for that market. Uh, this has a SaaS-ish business model. I don't know if you could technically qualify it as that, looking at uh, monthly and annual subscriptions. And it comes in three versions. First up, there is a Metallic Core Backup and Recovery. This is for file servers, SQL, uh, VMware. It's going to be backed up either in the cloud or on-prem with Linux and Windows support, as you might imagine. Uh, there's Metallic Office 365 Backup that does exchange uh, OneDrive and SharePoint. And then there you have an endpoint recovery as well that can run on Linux, Windows, and Mac OS. Uh, customers can choose uh, a backup target, whether that be the public cloud, uh, the Metallic public cloud, which they uh, run. I mean, essentially, you're still going to be running that on some sort of public cloud. A mixture of both with support for AWS and Azure. And I think that may be the most important part here. Uh, they're going to be competing with companies like uh, Clumio and Druva in this public cloud based SaaS backup space. Um, and Druva definitely, you know, comes from that endpoint protection as is evolved into a, into a larger offering and that kind of stuff. But all of those are AWS, I'm pretty sure, exclusive in terms of where they're going to back up here. Um, you get the Commvault support services history and, you know, you know that, that kind of long legacy there, which has real tangible benefits down the line for these mid-market companies. Is that and having public cloud options a thing that will help them break into this market, Tom? Mm, I think so. Uh, ultimately, you've got a big company who's probably one of the most well-known in the backup recovery, disaster recovery space. I mean, when you look at the Gartner Magic Quadrant that was just released, Commvault's pretty high up in that corner. Um, ultimately, though, you know, this is the question. Can a big company compete in a smaller market against competitors that are specifically designed to capitalize on that? I would like to hope that this works out for Commvault because we've seen over the last year or so that, that they've had their challenges, but they seem to be sailing through them. And, and this kind of speaks exactly to what a company needs. Companies don't need giant tape robots anymore. Companies do not need multi-tier offsite replication vault, blah. They want a target to the cloud and be done with it. And they're not trying to do anything cute with searchability or secondary storage or anything like that. 
I want my data to survive a, a fire or a tornado or, you know, somebody accidentally deleting a file they shouldn't have. Um, so I think that this, this has potential. This, this could be a huge revenue source for Commvault if they can start getting people on board against the people that they're competing with. It's interesting in these cases, you know, we've seen companies like uh, Commvault, uh, NetApp also comes to mind in terms of companies that have these large established, uh, I don't even want to call them legacy businesses, but established lines of business, established ways of operating and how they're finding ways to modernize and to really speak to customers that maybe, you know, have never heard of Commvault or, or, or something like that before and opening up to new lines of business where they can't rely on, well, everyone knows who Commvault is, right? Um, and, and building mm-hmm. an offering that is outside of the name recognition and the, you know, and the history that comes with it, uh, valuable as that is assuredly for any, you know, for any uh, established company um, and being able to compete uh, against, you know, companies that arguably can maybe move a little, you know, quote unquote faster, be more agile, something like that. Um, so I, I think it's a really interesting offering. And if they can find ways to then tie that into other Commvault services down the line, hey, uh, you know, that certainly uh, would be uh, for their benefit as well. And I, and I also think um, could really open up and allow, um, you know, customers to protect workloads, you know, whether regardless of the company, um, whenever you can tie into those broader services and and bring in a better awareness of, you know, disaster recovery, data protection, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think that's a benefit to, to everybody. I would agree. And with that nod, that will just about bring us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Always a blast to have you on. Thank you, Rich. I appreciate every week that I have an opportunity to uh, wax intellectual about the news. (laughs) As well you should. Uh, and if you want to join us uh, for waxing and waning intellectual, uh, I guess, uh, you can find us every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, streaming live on Facebook, then later on the YouTubes for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, we like to keep it to about a half hour. Uh, so if you like it, share it, like, subscribe, do things that you do on whatever platform that you're watching it on. We definitely appreciate it. Uh, until next Wednesday, I'm Rich Straffolino. That's Tom Hollingsworth. And we're wishing both of you, or both of us, are wishing you to have a super sparkly day.